evening, everyone, and welcome to the February 2022 edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Morelia. Well, this June in Sonoma County, voters will weigh in on who they want to be the next county sheriff. There are four candidates vying for this office, and while in many cases this wouldn't be a particularly critical or even exciting election, I think this one is an exception. There are so many challenges facing law enforcement in general, but here in Sonoma County, there are some standouts including how the department relates to the very large LGBTQ community. This spring, I've invited all four candidates to spend an entire show each with us so you can get to know them better. We'll probe their values, perspectives on the sheriff's office as it is today, and I'll be asking them why they believe they're the most qualified candidate for the job. Our first candidate tonight is Kevin Burke, and he'll be with us next right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, February 27th, 2022. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of February 27, 2022. LGBTQ Nation reports that the U.S. State Department says that Russian authorities have drawn up a list of Ukrainians to execute after invading the country, and LGBTQ citizens are on it. This list includes politicians and journalists, along with members of religious and ethnic minority groups. Russia has orchestrated a continued campaign against the LGBTQ community, both inside the country and in areas under its influence. While the West mostly overlooked the imprisonment and torture of gay men and transgender women, the country solidified its grip on religious conservatives and the far right. LGBTQ people have been used as scapegoats for the West. Bathsheba Neil Crocker, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. office in Geneva, warned the High Commissioner for Human Rights that, quote, abuses in the aftermath of further invasion are being planned, end quote. Crocker warned in a letter, quote, these acts, which in the past Russian operations have included targeted killings, kidnappings, forced disappearances, unjust detentions, and the use of torture, would likely target those who oppose Russian actions, including Russian and dissidents in exile in Ukraine, journalists and anti-corruption activists, and vulnerable populations such as religious and ethnic minorities and LGBTQ plus people. Crocker went on to say, quote, specifically, we have credible information that indicates Russian forces are creating lists of identified Ukrainians to be killed or sent to camps following the military occupation. We also have credible information that Russian forces will likely use lethal measures to disperse peaceful protests or otherwise counter peaceful exercises of perceived resistance from civilian populations, end quote. And here in the U.S., it's the state legislative season, which only means one thing. Anti-LGBTQ bills are springing up across the nation. Last year was the worst in recent history for anti-LGBTQ activity in state legislatures, with 17 bills being enacted into law. This year promises to be every bit as bad as conservative lawmakers try their best to outdo last year's shameful record. According to the ACLU, which tracks the activity of state legislatures, more than half of the states in the country have some kind of anti-LGBTQ measures pending in their state. The proposed bills fall into several broad categories, but by far the largest are anti-trans measures and specifically measures targeting transgender youth. 27 states have some kind of measure that would stop transgender athletes from engaging in competitions based on their gender identity. Now, if that sounds like something more than just a coincidence, it's probably because it is. For several years, Alliance Defending Freedom, an anti-LGBT group that the Southern Poverty Law Center has designated as a hate group, 
has been working with legislators in states like Indiana and others to push anti-transgender legislation. In 17 states, there are also measures to interfere with medical treatment for transgender youth. The lawmakers display zero concern for the significant mental toll that these attacks take on transgender youth. And of course, transgender measures aren't the only things making their way through the legislative pipeline. Republicans see an opportunity to capitalize on parental concern, which proved to be a winning issue for them in last year's gubernatorial race in Virginia. Sixteen states are considering measures that have some kind of restrictions on the curriculum that would be offered and LGBTQ content. And here in the Bay Area, the GLBT Historical Society announced that the GLBT Museum, located on 18th Street in the heart of the Castro, opened its doors once again to the public last week on February 23rd. The museum closed due to the COVID pandemic. You can learn more about museum hours at glbthistory.org. And finally, big changes are afoot at San Francisco Pride with the sudden departure of its executive director, Fred Lopez. He's stepping down from his position that he's held for just over two years. He will be succeeded on an interim basis by San Francisco Pride Treasurer Suzanne Ford. She's a transgender woman who has served on the board of directors since 2018 and has been on the executive committee of both a vice president and treasurer. Ford's assumption of the interim executive director role marks the first time in years that San Francisco Pride has been led by a woman at both a board and staff level. And as we reported earlier this month, San Francisco Pride announced that the parade and festival will return in person this June. So stay tuned here to Outbeat Radio News for more details. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. The sheriff is the chief law enforcement officer for the county. In California, voters get to select the sheriff. This person is responsible for running the county jail and providing law enforcement services to all of the unincorporated areas of the county, as well as to the cities that contract for law enforcement services. The sheriff leads and directs the deputies who serve Guerneville and those who provide contracted police services in the city of Sonoma and Windsor. This June, Sonoma County voters will select the next person to lead this critical law enforcement agency and the person who will be charged with making change. With us tonight is Chief Kevin Burke. He's retired from the Healdsburg Police Department and is one of the four candidates running for sheriff. Chief, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Good to see you. Uh, great to have you here. This is a pretty exciting race coming up this spring, and this is a chance for our listeners really to get to know each of the candidates. So I'm really excited to be able to share your story and experience with them. But give us a little bit about your background. Tell us about where you grew up and what attracted you to law enforcement. Thank you, Greg. So I grew up in Napa County, uh, born and raised in uh, the small town of St. Helena, population about uh, 5,000. And I was raised by my dad there, who was a uh, public school teacher. And what a great place to grow up, small town, everybody knows everybody, Um, a very safe and um, just exciting place to grow up even for a kid in a small town I, I i really loved it and what drew me to law enforcement initially was my experience in in saint helena working in a uh, small town you get to know the police officers uh, they get to know you for better or for worse and at some point i my interest was peaked and one of them talked to me about becoming an explorer scout so mm-hmm. Uh, at the age of 14, I became an Explorer Scout with the San Helena Police Department. 
and ended up working there as a dispatcher uh, after graduating high school, summer before I went off to college. And it was just a great match for me. I was uh, excited to be in there and engaged with uh, the place that you grew up in a very, very different way and watching how these officers dispatchers go out and made a difference in people's lives. It's what uh, definitely got me interested in the first place. That's awesome. And you've had some pretty wide ranging experience uh, in your career. When you left St. Helena, where did you end up? Yeah, so I went to, to LA, you know, grow, the one thing about growing up in a small town, when you graduate high school, you're very much ready to get the heck out. <laughs> and so I moved to LA to go to college, went to Whittier College. And I, I knew I was interested in law enforcement because of that Explorer Scout work. So the LAPD had a reserve program that allowed you to join as a level three at a pretty young age. So I joined the LAPD as a reserve uh, level three while I was in college. So I was sort of pursuing both. And uh, ended up uh, after about four years, got my bachelor's degree at Whittier College. And the whole time was doing reserve policing, which really involved at that young age working in the front desk at uh, at some of the Los Angeles mm -hmm. police stations. Mm -hmm. The job of sheriff is clearly a pretty complex one. Uh, talk about your education first that's prepared you for this role. Okay, so I've got that bachelor's degree. I decided to uh, go to law school after graduating college and uh, graduated from UC Berkeley Law School, Bolt Hall, 1991. And that was going to be my career uh, initially. I was still a reserve officer with the LAPD, so I kind of had these two paths going. But the reserve work was something I really, really enjoyed, but was going to be a side thing. And my full-time job was going to be that of an attorney. Practice law privately for a couple of years and then joined the DA's office where I was a prosecutor for three years. And that was a, a great job. What a way to uh, just broaden your outlook and life experience dealing with the criminal justice system as a prosecutor and going before a jury and or a judge uh, advocating on behalf of the people and victims and uh, a great experience. Did that for three years while also doing the reserve police work and actually started teaching law at the Los Angeles Police Academy to fulfill my my reserve duties at that time. Wow. Um, and I also have a master's in um, uh, management, uh, public safety management specifically from Johns Hopkins University. I went back to the school later in life uh, to, I don't just kind of believe in lifelong learning. And um, when I had become a police chief, decided that uh, I wanted to do this unique program they had at Johns Hopkins the police executive leadership program it's called so you had to fly to baltimore there was no distance learning back in those days distance learning meant getting on a plane and uh getting myself to baltimore every couple of weeks for a two-year period to get that master's degree so that kind of rounded out uh my educational uh experience over the years and it was more focused i mean the law degree clearly is, is a great asset to have in law enforcement, but the, the masters from the police executive leadership program really helped help that. Sure. And of course the experience working as a prosecutor. Uh, so you went to work for LAPD. Talk about some of the special assignments. I mean, I'm sure you got a lot of experience working there. What are some of the assignments that you had while you were working for that huge department? So as a reserve, I worked the front desk or uh, patrol. Um, 
after three years as a prosecutor, I decided I wanted to do it full time. It was my passion. It was the one type of work, the only type of work I ever experienced that I just felt that excitement and vigor for every time I went in. You've been a cop. You, you know how that can be when you're um, going in and just making a profound difference in people's lives and the experience um, and reward that goes along with that, the satisfaction. So I decided to pursue a full-time law enforcement career, left the DA's office. Uh, and then of course, as a full-time officer, I worked uh, patrol. Um, I was able to work um, uh, in vice for a couple of years. I continued my teaching at the police academy. You know, when you join the police department with a law degree, they tend to, even in a big organization like Los Angeles want to funnel you into <clears throat> certain assignments that they think will help um, maximize their use of you as a resource. So at one point, um, they had me working at employee relations group, uh, where you do a lot of legal analysis of pending legislation and look at what positions the department wants to take on matters like that and you investigate grievances from employees as well. So I did that for a little bit, promoted to sergeant, had some uh, good experience working as a patrol sergeant. And then at that point, again, they um, kind of pigeonhole you a little bit into assignments that will maximize use of the law degree. So uh, continued to work up at the academy up and until I made sergeant. And then I had to focus on being a supervisor at that point, supervised an undercover vice unit for a couple of years. And then spent my last two years in the internal affairs section, um, advocate section for the LAPD, which is a unit that basically evaluates disciplinary cases, um, cases involving serious misconduct, and presents those cases in front of an administrative tribunal. Um, it was sort of like being a prosecutor again in, in, in certain ways. Um, and I, my last two years with the LAPD were spent in that assignment. It was. Uh, a, a very um, changing experience to be up close and, and personal uh, dealing with cases like that. It does, it changed my perspective a bit, um, but very rewarding as well, because as you know, in law enforcement, we count on the profession to police itself. Mm -hmm. And that's an important piece of it. And so working that assignment, um, it's not something that you enjoy doing, uh, but you recognize the importance of doing it while you're doing it. Yeah. So after all of that experience at LA, you migrated north uh, and got your first police yes. chief's job. Talk a little bit about that. Where was all that? So uh, my first police chief job was in Lakeport. It was cl close to where I grew up. And that was something that was uh, important to me to get back up into Northern California, closer to family, closer to where I grew up. Uh, after a number of years in LA, I was ready to, to get back up to the Northern California lifestyle. So I, I uh, was honored to be selected as police chief in Lakeport. I did that for uh, two years, and then they asked me to be city manager and step in and do that for a couple of years, which I did. Uh, an extraordinary learning experience. It's one minute you're running a police department, and the next minute you're running an entire city. And I was surprised by it. I was a junior department head at the time, uh, but they felt just in a short time I had been there that I demonstrated the skills and capabilities to be able to uh, to do that for a two-year period. So I did that, uh, back to being police chief for a little bit, and then the opportunity in Healdsburg as police chief opened up. And I knew right away that that was going to be a good fit for me. 
even closer to where I grew up uh, and wine country where I, you know, the same type of um, atmosphere I was used to as a kid. And I, I often think of Healdsburg as just a little bit bigger version of St. Helena. Mm -hmm. So um, again, honored to be selected as police chief of Healdsburg, did that job for 10 and a half years, wow. and then just recently retired. And most people would be very satisfied with that incredible career. I mean, you've done so much. And now you're applying, literally, for the voters as your oral board for the office of sheriff, which, you know, by all counts is like a hiring process of no other. Why? What's your motivation? What's driving you to take this this huge responsibility on? Well, you know, um, as I watched the, the race for sheriff kind of unfold and, and develop uh, and, and talk to a number of people in, in, in my life who... Uh, also we're watching that here in Sonoma County. There was clearly a, a sense that what's needed in, in the race and what's needed in the sheriff's office is somebody who has experience leading a law enforcement organization and a track record of trying different things, trying innovative and new practices and implementing change in an organization. Somebody who is uh, prioritizes public safety as I always have, but also delivers high level of community satisfaction, community trust, and also internally within the organization, a high level of satisfaction for the people, men and women that do the work. So um, in talking to people that uh, supported the idea of me running for sheriff and doing a lot of soul searching myself, I felt that I could make a difference in that position and uh, began to get excited about the opportunity. And here I am. Awesome. You mentioned a change of perspective when you had that experience uh, running the tribunals or being part of those tribunals at, at LAPD. And so I'm curious about your values for law enforcement. Uh, what do you think are the most important ones? And do you think that those values are present in the Sonoma County Sheriff's Office? So the most important value for a peace officer uh, uh, to always be mindful of and fall back on is their integrity and their oath. You know, I, I like to say that my philosophy is all about people, uh, the people that we serve as peace officers, the people that actually do the work also I'm passionate about that. And I think it's important for a peace officer to always remember uh, and any employee of a law enforcement organization to always remember their oath. It, it really um, distinguishes. Uh, there are certain jobs in uh, our society where you are oath bound and being a peace officer is one of them. And I like to talk about the oath and, and, and what it means, you know, protecting people, acting with integrity at all times and recognizing that it, on a fundamental level, your job is to protect other human beings and do so with honor, integrity, honesty. Um, and as far as those values at the Sonoma County Sheriff's Office, I do think that that organization is an organization made up of some men and women who are fantastic, uh, oath-bound, and uh, employees and uh, people who have a high level of integrity. What I think, um, obviously in law enforcement, what we've all seen over the years is you have a lot of good stuff being done by a law enforcement organization. And then you have 
these blemishes that can reflect so negatively on the entire profession and on the entire organization. And obviously Sonoma County Sheriff's Office has not been immune to that. What I think they really need is some strong leadership that's value-based to come into that organization and really empower and lead them and, and move that organization into what I would call a highly functioning organization. Again, I think it's an organization made up of some great men and women, um, but I do think it needs a style of leadership that is focused on not only supporting the people that do the work, but also the community as well and doing significant outreach and meeting the expectations of the very, very diverse and sophisticated people of Sonoma County. Mm-hmm. So as you, as you reflect on those values and you look at the organization, do you see any of your personal values that you think are important that might be missing that you're going to need to work on as a sheriff? Well, I think that there's an opportunity to redefine police work. One of my values is I really define law enforcement um, in a very broad way. So I think that randomly stopping in to visit with a business or playing with kids on the street or stopping at a school cafeteria to go eat with kids is police work, law enforcement. So I I define it broadly. And I I think that messaging is important. And I'd love the opportunity to go in to an organization like that and sort of empower staff to be able to do kind of those innovative, different community building, trust building activities. There's a lot of research that shows that non-law enforcement encounters with with law enforcement that are non-enforcement related is what I mean to say. So those kind of positive non-enforcement interactions not only benefit the reputation of the organization, but can, can really build trust between communities that may not have trust and law enforcement. And I think that's the fun part of the work too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think that if you look at what I did in Healdsburg and, and look at, at, at the track record, uh, I think there are some opportunities also to implement like the social worker response program that I implemented in Healdsburg, um, you know, as a way to redefine how we respond to issues around mental health addiction uh, the unhoused, and because no law enforcement organization has ever by itself solved those weighty issues. But if you partner with other entities and with other professionals, I think that that approach is the future of things. And I think the sheriff's office could take a significant lead on constructing not only their own program to to better handle calls for service like that, freeing up valuable deputy time to do other things, um, but could also kind of take the lead on a countywide level and maybe coordinating with other cities because you see other cities implementing these social worker programs as well. And I think the sheriff's office could take the lead on kind of coordinating that on a countywide level instead of the patchwork that you see kind of evolving at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of those principles you talked about, you know, are examples of community policing. They're embedded within the tenets of procedural justice. And, you know, those philosophies have been around for a long, long, long time, right? I mean, you know, they have, they've been called different things, but they have been around. It's really all basically the same sort of thing. 
I'm just curious, why do you think that, that it hasn't really stuck? I mean, law enforcement as a profession, I think, has been back and forth uh, with a focus on community policing, and then we move away from it. And now there's, in many jurisdictions, sort of a, a refocusing of it. What do you, why do you think it just doesn't stick? What's missing that's, that's preventing it from really taking hold so that it's sort of a standard practice in every agency? Well, I think it has been for some, and, I, and I, in part, it's a, a leadership issue, but it's also because of the, the competing demands that you have in a law enforcement organization, too. You have a limited resource, and it can get pulled and tugged in different directions. But to institutionalize what you're talking about, community policing in an organization, I think a lot of police chiefs want to do it. It starts with modeling that behavior at the very top of the organization, uh, being willing to demonstrate to those that do the work exactly what that looks like so that they see their police chief or their sheriff coming out of that office, going out there and engaging the community themselves and continuing to make it a priority through programs that just make it a regular piece of what the officer's daily activities are. So it's about you can message community policing in the short term. And, and I think a lot of organizations are great about that. And you know, making it a, a long-term focus just requires constant care and attention so that you're not just coming back to it when there's some type of critical incident or momentum. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's law enforcement culture that I think um, over time can cause to go back to emphasis on other things. Looking at calls for service, targeting specific crime issues. And at the end of the day, people want to be safe and want a community that's free from crime. Yeah. But I really do believe strongly you can have both high level of community policing and orientation uh, redefining it broadly and, and really empowering and emphasizing and creating opportunities for your team to go out and practice it so that it's not just about calls for service, uh, citations, arrests, and other traditional measures of what a police officer is doing or a deputy is doing that is their work product, but also how many positive community interactions that you had. Um, so it requires follow through. It requires follow-through and constant TLC. Yep. I totally agree. Let's shift a bit. Uh, California has been uh, one of the states that's had a tremendous amount of legislative attempts at law enforcement reform. A lot of bills have come through. Uh, some that are significant, some that don't seem that they do much. But from your perspective, as you've been watching these legislative reforms come through, which ones stand out to you that you think are important? I think um, probably one of the more significant ones in, in my view is uh, AB 1506 as it relates to attorney general uh, investigation. Uh, anytime you have the death of an unarmed civilian, um, somebody who is not in possession of, of a deadly weapon, basically. And I think what we see in law enforcement today is it's not just about the mechanics of what we do and we're satisfied that it's a fair investigation we're satisfied that it's thorough and transparent it's about public perception and ensuring that there's trust 
So I think the notion that the attorney general has a second set of eyes and ears, I mean, when you have an incident like that, you're automatically going to have the district attorney heavily involved. But the to me, that piece of it where the attorney general has the ability to come in and be significantly involved and review that case, I think is, is fundamentally a pretty big change. And again, important from a trust building standpoint. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there's no situation where the eyes of the community are on law enforcement any more intensely than when you have a situation like that, where there's been the death uh, of somebody at the hands of, of law enforcement. If, and in this case, where they're determined to be unarmed, not armed with a weapon. Yeah. Yeah, those are dicey. And in this county, there's been a lot of scrutiny. Uh, the voters have, have spoken about the need for local oversight, specifically the sheriff's office. There is the uh, county organization that's trying to do that. But there's at least a perception that the sheriff's office has, to date, resisted that oversight. Maybe even in some cases refused to participate in it. You know, What are your thoughts about local community non-law enforcement civilian oversight in general and why is it why do you see it as important or not for the sheriff's office well i think it's become a expectation in the community that there be that level of oversight and it's happening throughout sonoma county it's it's not just about the sheriff's office individual cities and police agencies if you look at what's happening in petaluma and rona park and santa rosa you know they have all different models of some sort of independent law enforcement oversight. So it really has become a standard, if not an expectation that you have some version of that. For the Sonoma County Sheriff's Office, that involves Ilero and Measure P. Uh, Ilero having been created by the Board of Supervisors who are duly elected to, to change law and enact laws, and then Measure P approved by the voters of Sonoma County after that. So in my opinion, the sheriff, as an elected official, has an obligation to make that work. And you you have sort of two levels. You have the sheriff himself, and then you also have um, the labor issues involved with it as well. As you you know, uh, Measure P, which was passed by a lot of voters, is currently kind of, uh, we're not sure what is going to be uh, in effect, after the legal process works its way through, the board has approved or, or uh, appealed a decision by PERB that took certain provisions of it and, and required that there be a meet and confer process, which there is. And so I think all of that process has to be respected and allowed to continue. And the next sheriff at, at, a, at a basic level has to establish a good working relationship with Iolero based on mutual trust. Whatever comes out of that process that's occurring now as it relates to what pieces of Measure P will be uh, legally allowed. And, you know, it, it could be all of it and there could be a few pieces that aren't, but whatever is, is left of that needs to be embraced by the sheriff. And in as much as those provisions were all approved by the voters, you know, it's, it's important that the sheriff support what uh, comes out of that process and and ensure that he, uh, they cooperate with Ilero and with oversight. I think it's a reasonable community expectation at this point. I think the sheriff's office sets a tone by saying, we're an open book. 
we have nothing to hide. And to me, that's really important because if you spend a lot of time resisting oversight, it can create the impression that you do have something you don't want the public to see. So I think the next sheriff needs to seize the opportunity to build trust and cultivate a good relationship with Iolero, the CAC, the, uh, their advisory committee, and um, and make oversight work. Yeah. Well, and that's it's right in line with the call for transparency and accountability that you mentioned. There is an, an idea that law enforcement sometimes isn't completely upfront with what's going on, or at least there's a there's a a perception that something's being hidden, whether it actually is or not. As you look at the sheriff's office and you think about your role as potentially the sheriff, what would you do to increase transparency and accountability from the public's perspective? Well, you mentioned public perception. It's all about building trust and relationships. That's the key. And I have a track record of doing exactly that as a police chief because it's very, very important to me. So again, it's about tone setting. And I think it would carry a lot of weight from a transparency and accountability sense. If the sheriff himself is willing to go out and acknowledge the significance of oversight, establish a good relationship with the independent auditor and just be publicly supportive of the notion that we have nothing to hide. We are an open book. And to set that tone from, from the top down and, and throughout the organization, I think that, that that type of tone setting is the first and most fundamental part. Then you've got to go out and build relationships with communities that may have never had the elected sheriff walk into their space before and really prioritize outreach with the entire community. One of the ways I intend to do that is with a uh, sheriff's advisory committee. And it would be a deep dive into the diversity of Sonoma County to ensure that there is a broad range of representation so that you can truly get a sense for what every diverse piece of Sonoma County's expectations are of the Sonoma County Sheriff's Office. So you've got to have this open line of communication with the sheriff's office directly with community stakeholders, significant outreach through town halls um, and attending other events with staff, with part of the team so that you can en enhance trust through direct contact and build transparency and relationships by saying, look, this is your sheriff's office. We're here to talk to you, answer any questions including the tough ones. And we're here to partner with you for the betterment of the County of Sonoma and our community. So that's what I think about when I think about how you can build trust, transparency, mm -hmm. and accountability within the Sheriff's Office. Well, you're right. Sonoma County is very diverse. Uh, of course, one of the populations that this show is most interested in is our LGBTQ population. We have a very, very high percentage per capita of LGBT people living in the county. So let's start out. Talk about your experience working with the LGBT community. Well, I've done a, a fair amount. Um, so I've been um, engaged with the LGBT commu community, LGBTQ community for years as a uh, HIV STI test counselor for the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. That's some volunteer work that I do that I'm very uh, passionate about. Now, granted, the program is 
on hold due, due to COVID, uh, our, our volunteer program, but it's a really robust and exciting way to go in and engage with the LGBTQ community. And um, in a different way, I mean, here I am as a police chief sitting across from somebody who is a person of color often, sometimes unhoused, trans, they have no idea that you act in that role. And then here I am interacting with them in a way that is helping them navigate this complex and uh, often anxiety-filled process of being tested for hepatitis C, HIV, other STIs. Um, so it was really a very uh, rewarding experience and a way to interact with the LGBTQ community. I've also, as you know, uh, done some work with you at the uh, Napa Valley College Police Academy sitting on panels, uh, volunteered my time to talk to recruits that are in the, the police academy about what it's like to be uh, gay in law enforcement uh, and have a historical perspective that goes back to the 1980s and watching how that has changed over the years. I've also co-founded an organization called Protect and Defend, which was an advocacy group <clears throat> of LGBTQ law enforcement, firefighters, and uh, military professionals. And um, that's a nonprofit that still exists today. We started it a number of years ago, uh, back in the height of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And we just wanted to create a safe space for people that do that work and are also LGBTQ. And that organization continues today. It's important work. I was on the board originally uh, as a founding member, but now I'm just a uh, regular member. So. Wow. And so as you look at the sheriff's office uh, and you look at this large segment of Sonoma County's demographic, how should LGBTQ people be represented in the rank and file of the organization? I think it's important for the organization to mirror the community. And so we should have people need to be feel comfortable being LGBTQ in an organization. And I think that starts with specifically going into that community along with all other communities. And I mean, all communities, I think that if you're going to talk about increasing the rank and file at all different levels, correctional officers, non-sworn deputies, you've got to be willing to go into their spaces and actively recruit and talk about how anyone can make a contribution in this great profession, whether they're, uh, trans, gay, uh, black, brown, white, whatever the case might be, you know, there's room for everyone in this organization and all are welcome. Uh, because if you're a young LGBTQ person, you might think that you're not gonna be able to work in an organization like that because there's gonna be too much uh, negativity or stigma attached with that. And that's a valid concern. I've seen that in my years uh, as a police officer. But my sense of the younger generation of law enforcement today is that they really don't care. They really don't. And I know that having watched the evolution over the years and having had conversations with people at the sheriff's office, even after announcing my run for office, um, where it was very public about my sexual orientation. And I think people want strong leadership. People want competency. Uh, and they don't care where it comes from. Uh, and so I think there is an opportunity to build and increase participation with communities that may have not historically had as large a representation in law enforcement. 
by messaging that, by specifically going into those communities and encouraging them to apply. And that it's a safe space for them to come and work. And I believe that it will be. Yeah, and I, I'll tell you, I, I have heard from students who have gone to work there before, who have applied there before, who are part of the community, who have not received a warm welcome. Um, and I think, I think there's a word out there that that is not a safe place for LGBTQ people to work. Now, that's those are anecdotal, admittedly, right? Right. right. I, don't, I don't know what the real environment is in the organization. But as you look at the rank and file uh, and you think about your role as a leader there in trying to create a rank and file that mirrors the community more broadly than just LGBTQ people, what's missing? What needs to be added to that rank and file so that the folks who are working in the 911 center and out on the street mirror the people they're serving? Well, I think one of the best ways to achieve that is with a recruiting practice that emphasizes bringing people in from the entry level ground up so that you create opportunities to hire homegrown talent. A lot of law enforcement agencies, and I think the sheriff's office is no exception, uh, rely on lateral hires. And I think that's important. You're talking about hiring someone who's already trained to do the work, uh, who already has a work history. You can look at their level of competency and ability to do the work and reliability and all kinds of other employment factors. But some of the best hiring decisions I ever made as a police chief involve people who just came out of the academy or are people that we sent through the academy so that you can take somebody who's got no experience, make them a dispatcher, take somebody who's got no experience, and then they can become a deputy sheriff, correctional officer, whatever the case might be. And being casting a really wide net in order to make sure that you're talking to people and in, in encouraging people from uh, in demographics that aren't as significantly rep represented in the sheriff's office. So you're, you're doing really targeted outreach to those communities. I think that's a key part and it has to start with the sheriff so that the sheriff walks into those spaces as well. And I, I think that when the sheriff is willing to message their own experience in law enforcement and, and being gay, I think that that's an, an asset from a recruiting standpoint as well. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it's a process, Greg, right? Uh, to diversify the ranks because at the end of the day, you, you, you've got to ensure that diversity and that you're casting this wide net and I think it will be embraced at the end of the day. I really do believe that the deputy, the dispatcher, the correctional officer, professional staff, they want a coworker that is competent. And I, I truly believe they don't care, at least at the line level. You know, you may have, um, let's, you know, then you may have some points of view, uh, you know, but I, the people I talk to at all levels of that organization seem to be very open to, whomever they're working with, as long as that person is competent. I think there are competent people in all of our communities, and we've got to go out there and specifically do outreach to bring them into the organization, encourage them, tell them what a great career it is. Yeah. Well, that's going to be one of your biggest challenges because it's really tough today. Uh, yeah, it for is. Sure. It absolutely is. It's a hard job. Um, the men and women that do the work, it's, it's a really, really tough job. Yeah. And um, 
takes a special, unique personality to want to go in and do it. That's a fact. That's for sure. A lot of communities across the United States are using LGBT liaison officers to do specific outreach, the kind of outreach you're talking about, into their communities. It's an ancillary assignment. Uh, it's formalized. And I'm not aware of any agency in Sonoma County that has a formalized LGBT liaison officer. I may be wrong about that, but I, I haven't read anything about it. I haven't met any of the people that are doing it. Uh, talk about that as is something for the sheriff's office. Is that something of value that you see uh, or is there not enough staff for that? Right. So I, I believe that in Sonoma County, what the organization could benefit from is a staff maybe one, two, that are assigned to outreach to all different facets of the community. So it's kind of a community outreach position that would include LGBTQ outreach specifically and relationship building. And I will, I will say where I've seen that done, it, it provides a, a huge benefit and trust building opportunity for the organization. So my plan is to have a outreach staff member or a couple that are going to be doing outreach on a broad level to communities, LGBTQ communities, um, Latinx community, BIPOC community, somebody that they know. And of course, the sheriff is got to be the lead ambassador as well. Relationship building starts as you're running for election. I'm building relationships with all pieces of the community as we speak, and it's kind of exciting. And that doesn't end when the election ends. But having specific staff dedicated to doing that, I think is absolutely uh, an opportunity for the Sonoma County Sheriff's Office. And uh, I, it, it wouldn't be just LGBTQ, but to me, it would be somebody assigned to outreach to all uh, communities that have had a history of uh, maybe not having trust with law enforcement or uh, marginalization uh, in society on, on a larger level as well. So, Great. Uh, let's get back to this issue of trust that you've mentioned a couple of times. I think one of the things that clearly is challenging public trust in the sheriff's office specifically are the series of use of force cases that have been in the news. Uh, we recently had the former deputy be tried and he was found not guilty uh, of a manslaughter charge. But these, these events undermine trust. What's your view? Uh, of the sheriff's office and its history with use of force and what kinds of changes do you think you need to make to reinstill that trust? So there's a couple things. First of all, um, there's a training component and there are some training practices out there that really are beneficial in helping deputies prepare for mentally and physically to make those tough decisions that they have to make. Um, have you talked to people inside the organization, which I have, and talk about how they train? Um, nobody that I talked to in law enforcement, as an example, with um, Deputy Blunt and the, and the ward case that you, that tragic situation you brought up, I haven't talked to anybody in law enforcement that viewed what they saw in the video as a, a proper way of dealing with that situation. So why is it that that occurred? 
All right, so there are, and some of this is, is, is it's all really backed by science. There are force options training that can be emphasized. There are mind-based, um, what I think are wellness practices, meditation, uh, EMDR, other practices that give not only the tools to staff to better manage stress and have better lives when they're away from work, but also just make their, there's physical fitness and, and mental fitness. And I think that the organization, the organization needs to emphasize a training program that continually prepares that deputy to make those very critical decisions and not, so I, I think you need to see a higher level of it, a, a close look at it, a revamping of it, if you will. Um, so it starts at that, at that training and wellness level with the deputy, giving them the skills they need to make those tough decisions and providing them with state-of-the-art force options training so that they're not just it being talked about how to make these critical decisions. And then the next time they're really called upon to do that mental process is when they're actually having to make that decision in the field. Uh, how you investigate those and what you do in the aftermath, I think, is also critical and in to ensure and get out in front of those and it starts with relationship building up front if you have strong ties and relationships with all of the diverse components of Sonoma County community you can do a better job of ensuring that community that there is going to be a full and transparent investigation I also believe in establishing uh, good involvement right off the bat with make sure the DA's office has everything they need. Even if it's not legally required, you can engage the attorney general's office. Make sure that Iolero is on board, right? And, and you're communicating with everyone and the public. You know, go out into the community and even hold town halls after a critical incident like that so that you're giving people a chance to ask the tough questions so that you can ensure the public that there's going to be full transparency and accountability. So it's a complex issue. It, it, it really is because in law enforcement, we know that there are going to be uses of force. And we know that there are going to be serious uses of force over time. And it's a question of how you respond to it, how you prepare for it before it happens, uh, I think in addition to how you respond afterwards. And, and both have to be thoughtful and thorough. And it starts with leadership that's willing to be in front of it and be willing to prepare for it and to look for best practices far beyond the walls of your own organization. I mean, there are departments out there that have new and innovative practices that we, would, we may not even know about. So I'm a big believer in creating what I call a learning organization, where we're always evaluating, looking for self-improvement. And there's no more important area to do that with than use of force practices, how we investigate uses of force, how we train for them and prepare for them. Yeah, I, could, I couldn't agree more. The public trust is just so tied, so tied yeah. to that, right? Yeah. An L.A. County deputy once told me that people who like justice and sausage should not watch either one of them being made. Because it's never going to look pleasant. It just right. isn't. And so it, I, I agree with you. It is really about trying to create a trusting relationship before the use of force happens that is so important. That's what's going to help you survive the criticism afterwards. 
for sure. Right. And, you know, one really highly public negative situation can erode years of trust Absolutely. building. It's, it's just a fact. We've seen it. Um, Absolutely. Uh, we've got about five minutes left, and I, there's two really important questions that I want to ask you, and one we could probably talk about for a whole other show, and that is law enforcement's role in the unhoused population, and let's call it an unhoused problem. We have a huge unhoused population in this county, and it's not entirely law enforcement's problem, that's for sure, but what do you see law enforcement's role being in working with the homeless community? Well... I think you're never going to do it by yourself, right? There's got to be a partnership. And in my view as sheriff, I think my strategy strategy would be to work with the Sonoma County continuum of care to collaborate on how law enforcement and outreach workers can work together as a team. And we did that kind of work in Healdsburg, having them work together as a team to ensure that interactions with those who are experiencing homelessness are conducted with uh, and result in services being partnered with that. So it's not, our jails don't become uh, de facto homeless shelters, okay? So I think we need to have training programs that educate deputies about the complex and diverse needs of the unhoused population and how to connect the homeless population with appropriate services. What we did in Healdsburg was create a model where you had a clinician responding with an officer and we partnered with um, nonprofits and outreach so that there was this relationship so that deputies knew they had resources just beyond what they can traditionally muster as a deputy. And the Sonoma County continuum of care is a really, uh, really huge part of that. Um, and so I would expand our relationship with them uh, to ensure that we're using all the resources they have to, as well. And I know we can do this because we've implemented the same program when I was police chief in Healdsburg. So uh, that, that partnership between outreach workers, nonprofits, and um, it, it's got to be more than just the deputy in the field. So to that, as an example, uh, you know, what are your thoughts about having non-law enforcement people, non-law enforcement uh, trained folks respond to crisis involving those with a mental health problem or a mental health crisis? Should law enforcement be the first responder or should this be handled, let's say, as a medical emergency? Well, it really depends, right? Um, it really depends. If you've got somebody who's in crisis, uh, but let's say they're uh, armed with a deadly weapon, different situation. Um, but I, I believe that in some cases, the best resource is both. And in some cases, the best resource is a licensed clinician. It really depends on what type of crisis the, the person is involved in. If it's an, um, you know, what we did in Healdsburg was it was not just mental health, but addiction, unhoused. Uh, anytime you had a situation, we knew that the best resource wasn't always a police officer with a gun. So we created that team in Healdsburg and it's been very successful. So, um, there are a lot of situations that police officers, deputies get called upon to address and that we aren't the best resource to address. Sometimes it, it can't be helped depending on the situation. At the end of the day, we have to protect the public. We have to investigate crimes. Um, but for long-term solutions, 
the best resource is often uh, a non-officer. And that officer is then free to do other work. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and you look at every count, every city in Sonoma County is involving themselves in a program like that these days. So it's, it's become a, a norm and it's exciting to watch. And um, each one of them are a little bit different, but if you're a law enforcement agency today and don't have on board a relationship with clinicians to respond to that, you're missing an opportunity. Sure. Well, they're more trained. I mean, law enforcement officers in the right. academy get less than 16 hours of training on mental health. And people right. go to school for four to six years uh, to earn a master's degree to deal with people that are having a mental health crisis. So it just doesn't even really necessarily make sense. We've got just and, a couple. And, go ahead. And how often have you how often have you heard an officer or deputy say, I am not trained to be a social worker or a counselor, but that's what I end up doing. So I think they recognize that, that there is an opportunity there as well. Right. We've got just a couple minutes left. I'm going to conclude by asking you, tell the voters of Sonoma County why you're the best candidate for sheriff. I'm the best candidate for sheriff because I uh, have experience actually running a law enforcement organization and I have a, a track record you can look at. I'm about people. As I said, it's a really simple philosophy and you can look at the work that I've done in Healdsburg and see that. We had a very safe community and we also had extremely strong ties with all facets of our community. We implemented some innovative programs around harm reduction uh, to to prevent unnecessary opioid deaths, uh, specific outreach to all segments of the community. Uh, I really care. I I want to make a difference. I care about public safety in Sonoma County, and and that's the bottom line. I'm I'm really passionate about it, and I've run an organization and at one point an entire city uh, as city manager for a couple of years. So I have experience to hit the ground running and, and make and help that organization be a a sheriff's office that entire community can be proud of and that everybody who works there can be proud of as well. And it would be exciting to have that opportunity for me. Fantastic. We've been talking with Kevin Burke. He's one of the four candidates running for Sonoma County Sheriff that you'll get a chance to weigh in on, on June. Kevin, thanks for being with us tonight. Thank you. And that wraps up our hour. I'll be back next month with another candidate for Sonoma County Sheriff. So mark your calendars for Sunday, March 27th. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB. Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCB-FM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at rockyandrosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCB-FM Roanoke Park and KRCG-FM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.